In November of 2022, New York voters overwhelmingly approved a statewide referendum to borrow $4.2 billion to spend on environmental projects around the Empire State. At the end of 2023, the Hochul administration began doling out money from the Bond Act, so we wanted to check in on the status of this effort. And to do that, we're joined in the Capitol Press Room studio by Basil Sagos, Commissioner for the State Department of Environmental Conservation. Welcome back to the show, Basil. Thank you, Dave. Good to be back. Our pleasure. And also with us is the department's Chief Resiliency Officer and the state it's Environmental Bondac Czar, Susanna Randall. Thanks for joining us, Susanna. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So back in December, the governor announced $450 million in awards for water infrastructure improvements with $200 million of that money coming from the Environmental Bond Act, less than, I think, about 5% of the total there. Can you talk us through how that fits in with the broader goals of the Bond Act and explain who is going to benefit from the first distribution of money from the Bond Act? So really, local communities are going to benefit from these clean water and drinking water projects, and it's residents all across the state. And in terms of fitting into the larger context, we're really looking at, you think about the name of the act itself, right? Clean water, clean air, green jobs. Um, It's about making environmental benefits and community benefits that help us be more resilient in the uh, extreme weather events that we're going to see increasingly, and we're already seeing across the state, Um, and being able to ensure quality of life across the state. That's good paying jobs, that's clean air, that's clean water. And when you look at the four categories that we have within the Bond Act, the way the legislation was crafted, uh, water quality and resilient infrastructure is you know, obviously a really important one, $650 million allocated to that area itself. Flood risk reduction and restoration projects, uh, $1.1 million, or I should say billion with a B there. Uh, open space and land conservation, you know, we've got $650 million allocated there up to that amount to, to spend on projects to really invest in infrastructure that gets people outside, that helps people be healthy and lead really great lives, uh, ultimately. And then up to $1.5 billion for climate change mitigation projects. And so when you look at that kind of corpus of funding, many of those projects don't just do water quality. They don't just do um, access to the outdoors. There are multiple co-benefits. And so when we think about drinking water, we think about clean water. It's also about the economics, right? You can't develop in the community. Your economy can't flourish if you don't have the, those key basic infrastructure needs met. Um, so it's really uh, getting the money across the state, not just through Bondac, but through the state budget, through Quia. Um, so much money out there really building up the infrastructure across the, across the state. Well, yeah, in this case, then, how do you choose what is getting funded with the Environmental Bond Act and what is getting funded with uh, existing streams? of revenue. So one of the things that's really, I think, awesome about the Bond Act is it's not one big omnibus funding, right? It's not like you come in and you apply to the Bond Act for money. It is a pot of funding that we're able to then allocate or sub-allocate to other agencies and programs to combine with existing funds to really boost the impact that we have across the state for all of these priorities that we have in terms of green jobs, in terms of water quality, in terms of environmental justice. Um, So we're able to really co-mingle those funds, and that really gets left up to the program managers so that they can, within each of the respective agencies and Bond Act entities, to look at how do we best use those funds and align them with the existing pots of funding that we have. So we've had environmental advocates who come in here and talk about water infrastructure seemingly every single year and outline the need as being in the billions, and that's with with a B. So this is $200 million from the Bond Act. Is that just a reflection of the capacity to do the work, or are you holding back some of that money? Because obviously the demand is out there. So how do you think about just dumping all the money at once versus 
200 million now for clean water and maybe another 100 million for clean water down the road. So there's a balance, right? So you want to get money out on the street. You want to succeed. So you want to get projects built. And when you're going out to bid, the last thing you want to do is drive up prices unnecessarily, right? If you have too many projects out bidding at the same time, there's not enough contractors to go around and you're going to start to see inflated prices. And that's what happens when you have too many jobs in one uh, one economic area. Say, oh, okay, I'm going to throw a high number at that job. We've seen that in other programs. We've seen that certainly with COVID and all of the supply chain issues we saw. We saw skyrocketing in costs and some of it was supply chain issues and some of it was these contractors are fully booked. And so we'll throw a high number and see if it sticks. And that's the last thing we want to do. We want to make sure that we're making sustainable investments with the taxpayer dollar, right? This is all of our money. And so we want to get want to make those dollars go as far as they can, leverage as many co-benefits as we can out of each project. So there's got to be a metered pace. Um, and we've got to strike a balance, right? Obviously, we want to push as many projects out as we can, but it's that balancing act, right? The other thing we want to do is we want to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success. You know, this has, these are real workload ramifications for every Bond Act entity to administer those funds and make sure that we're doing our due diligence to make sure we're compliant in all the regulations that apply. If we're commingling with federal dollars, there's a whole host of things that we've got to make sure that we're dotting the I's and crossing the T's so that we're compliant on those reporting requirements that we have from federal dollars, for example. And that's a really important thing. You raised $4.2 billion. is not a lot of money. And that's with the B, right? When you look at those needs across the state, and that's not just water, that's all the whole range of Bond Act funding needs, right? You look at the environmental needs we have. And part of the, the time that we're spending really is being really thoughtful, taking into account this project survey ideas that we had from our stakeholder tour around the state last year, taking those in, looking at them with regard to how the Bond Act is structured, because there are some really specific guide rails within the act, within the language of the law that we have to look at and say, okay, this entity can use these dollars, but only to these potential applicants and for this purpose. And really cross-checking that and saying, where's the demand and how do we best meet all of those needs, right? And then how do you take those benefits and multiply them? And that's about how do we say, okay, this is a match to some federal program. And some of that, you know, as you're probably aware, there's a lot of federal programs out there. It's kind of dizzying because there's a lot running around. And so it's about really lining those things up so that we can have the the maximum benefit for, for New Yorkers. Well, before we move on, let me reintroduce you both. For listeners just joining us, this is the Capitol Press Room, and we're getting an update on the state's $4.2 billion Environmental Bond Act. And our guests are Susanna Randall, the Environmental Bond Act czar, and Basil Sagos, the commissioner for the State Department of Environmental Conservation. So at the end of November, the state announced that $100 million from the bond would be available to help school districts with their multi-billion dollar transition to a zero-emission fleet of school buses. Same basic question, how does that fit in with, with the goal of the Bond Act, and what is the status of that effort? That's just really the tip of the iceberg, right, is really what you're saying. Yeah. There's a federal program on the street right now um, where they are offering uh, incentives for uh, zero-emission school buses also, um, and uh, the team at NYSERDA is doing a great job of making sure that our program really aligns with the program that the feds are offering, um, and complementary. So a uh, school district might come in and uh, have funding for buses from the federal program and then be able to use state funds to support the infrastructure that they need to be successful with fueling up those buses with electric uh, power. You know, you mentioned the 100 million. 
it's of a $500 million pot that the Bond Act allocates in the, in the language of the Act. We, we're going to spend $500 million at least on, on that program. And uh, it's about that metered pace, right? Getting money out on the street at a reasonable pace as it becomes consumed because it's a first-come, first-served voucher program. As we draw down those funds, we'll go to the DOB and make sure we have the funds in place to move more money out the door. And so in terms of the larger need, you know, as I noted before, there's just, the need is immense. And so uh, what we've done is we've offered uh, incentives that start at $114,000 per vehicle and it covers up to 100% of the incremental cost of going from a diesel vehicle to a repowered or zero emission vehicle or a new zero emission vehicle. So it's about incentivizing, saying, hey, we know you're going to need to buy a bus. Let's, let's give you the money that you need to buy the better bus that's um, going to impact the lives of our students, impact the lives of those drivers, impact the surrounding community in a positive way. Yeah, and, and I'll add on the buses front, they hear a lot about this right now. I mean, just nationally, right, the benefits of switching to a zero emission bus, electric bus. Um, we all know the taste and smell of diesel fumes, right? We oh, all yeah. grew up with it. We all rode those buses. Um, I mean, they're real uh, health and societal impacts with the old buses that we were all used to. Um, so when you talk about the Bond Act, clean water, clean air, I mean, part of it is air. Uh, part of it is also climate, of course, and, and reducing our, our reliance on fossil fuels, our emission sources to hit our targets. And um, these buses, while they only are on the road for a certain period of time during the day, um, nonetheless do have emissions in communities, and, and they impact kids, they impact drivers, they impact schools. Um, and the switch to a, uh, an electric alternative, a zero-emission alternative, can have benefits way beyond just the driving. Uh, you plug the bus bus back in at the uh, the depot at the school. You have enough of them plugged in. There are actually some companies out there do, doing what's called this reverse charging. Um, they're actually serving as these mini power plants to help communities effectively weather storms to provide some power back into the grid when they're plugged back in. Um, so it's kind of remarkable. You know, you think about a, a large school district that might only have its buses on the road for two or three hours a day. The remainder of the day, those buses are plugged in, they're charging, and they're, they're a source of potential power for the schools themselves. That's something I know a lot of districts are beginning to think about uh, across the country. And what's the status of doling out that $100 million? Have school districts begun applying for it already? Do you have a timetable for when it'll start actually reaching the districts around the state? Right. So there's a there's a timing issue, certainly, as school districts say, okay, we want to apply for these funds. They have a budgetary process that they've got to go through, right? They've got to pass their budget and make sure that those funds are approved locally. So really, uh, there's a little bit of a lag there uh, that we're going to see that we anticipate and we built into the program in terms of it's a first-come, first-served voucher program, really, in many ways for that reason, but also because it's built, and I sort of has modeled it off of other successful programs that they run. Um, and one of the things that that I, I would say, like, I get to be the Bondag czar of, like, the bigger picture, but the devil in the details. I love that we have experts in each of these programs that really drill down and know their stuff. Um, and so that's really what we're, we're relying on is, is, is all these teams and all these programs that are existing, which is, I mean, what a, what a great luxury we have, really, mm. uh, to be able to push funds out to existing teams that know what they're doing on this. It's exciting to see what programs across the state are going to pull in some more federal dollars, which I'm always a fan of. There's something special. The, the spark of joy we get from spending federal dollars is a little bit different than spending you know, state dollars. Like, personally, I think federal, you know, federal dollar spending is a little bit more joyful. I don't know. <laughs> I think there's some rap lyrics about other people's money. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> 
And after a quick break, we'll continue our conversation about spending from the state's $4.2 billion Environmental Bond Act with our guests, Basil Sagos, Commissioner for the State Department of Environmental Conservation, and Susanna Randall, the department's Chief Resiliency Officer and the state's Environmental Bond Act czar. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about spending the $4.2 billion Environmental Bond Act approved by voters in November of 2022. And our guests are Susanna Randall, the state's chief resiliency officer for the Department of Environmental Conservation, and Basil Sagos, commissioner for the State Department of Environmental Conservation. So there is a concern in the environmental movement that the Bond Act could be used to offset cuts to annual environmental spending as opposed to augmenting recurring commitments. Is that a legitimate purpose of the Bond Act to make up for annual spending during tight fiscal times like maybe the upcoming fiscal year? The Bond Act is uh, it's big and broad and it's meant to augment existing programs. You know, when you think about water funding, for example, we got to jump on that. The first round of funding out of the Bond Act was for water programming, and it was a a mixture of traditional water funds, in other words, traditional Clean Water Infrastructure Act funds, with Bond Act funds. Again, there was a perfect Venn diagram overlap of Bond Act purposes and the Clean Water Infrastructure Act funding purposes so that we could actually align those two programs almost seamlessly and boost them. And that's exactly what the Bond Act was designed to do, is to get in there and actually run those programs at a more aggressive clip. And I think what we're getting a really good feeling of is the sustainable nature of the funding that we're doing. Running too hard, it does drive up the prices. And that is a serious concern, right? Because every public dollar then is that that much less effective if we're driving those prices up. So we're in effect with the Bond Act and the Clean Water Infrastructure Act almost spending a little bit more than we would have spent if it was just the Clean Water Infrastructure Act. But it's achievable. It's efficient expenditure of resources. In the last two years, because of these increased resources and those federal dollars, we've actually spent over two years the largest amount of money on water probably in 40 years in New York State. Uh, $1.76 billion in grants. Those didn't exist seven years ago. $3.5 billion in loans and financing out of EFC. Again, that was typically hovering around when you were at EFC, Susanna, you know, $600 million in grants and loans. I mean, we are, as a state, crushing it on getting money out the door right now. And I say that with pride because we really have invested in our people, putting together great programs, leaning forward on getting to small villages and towns who don't have the ability to assemble grant teams, you know, put together complicated proposals, do engineering. I mean, EFC now has these teams that go around the state helping groups of communities through this process so that we're getting them access to these funds. And it really is incredible. And we completely agree with the passion that the environmental community, the municipal governance committee, all the various towns, villages, everyone is really excited about this water money. And honestly, I don't think anyone truly cares where it's coming from. It is just coming and it's coming at a rate that can solve problems in a a really meaningful way. So in that answer, you talked about the Bond Act as being something that augments annual spending. But most people who have added up numbers would say that 
going from $500 million a year in clean water infrastructure to $250 million a year, and then maybe using Bond Act money to make up the difference does not represent the definition of the word augment. So it sounds like the approach now is to offset cuts using the Bond Act. Is that a fair description? No, I don't, I don't think it is. I think how is, I, how is that not right? I think what we're looking at is the demand out there. And the, and the, demand, the demand is billions of dollars. The and demand might be billions of dollars, but is the capacity the same? The capacity how do we demand, know if we're not going to spend it, if we're not going to allocate we, it? We know the grants, we know the applications that come through on a regular basis. We know what projects are ready to go out there. So if you said we're going to have a billion dollars available for clean water this year, you don't think you'd get a billion dollars worth of applications from municipalities and nonprofits? Well, and I think you might. But again, is there capacity to do those projects? And that is a serious concern that we have. This is not make-believe. This is a real approach to spending. We don't want to increase the prices. So there's a sweet spot on spending out there on capacity, contract capacity. It's more than $500 million, but it is probably less than a billion in terms of what can be spent. This is in terms of the grant side, not the loan side as well. Mind you, some communities don't care about the grants. They can just go after financing. Mm-hmm. Some use a very small percentage of grants to offset some of their financing obligations. And that was the original intent of the Infrastructure Act was make it more attractive to go after the loans. And even with the amount of money that we've had, right, in the last few years in grants between feds, federal money and state money, you see the loan demand go way up, you know, really over now $3.5 billion over two years. And that was just unheard of for many years. So there is demand out there. We're meeting it. And the state has, in terms of its, of its capital outlay, has also extraordinary demands upon it, right? Certainly the governor and budget director talked about that extensively. You know, we're taking on more as a state. Talk about the migrant crisis, the money that we're outlaying right now on that, all the other demands that we have. And it's important for us to understand that we can achieve the environmental objectives by using a, a range of tools. And that's what you see with the Bond Act and clean water money being spent together. Well, sticking with that idea of capacity, does the state, uh, specifically in the Department of Environmental Conservation, have enough staff to ensure that the, the funding that we want to spend can move out the door in a timely fashion? Yes. I mean, we really do. We, we at DEC, last year, we got a bump in our, in our uh, staffing for water uh, for the Bond Act as well. Uh, when I first started, we were somewhere around 2,800. Now DEC is at 3,200, and that includes Susanna Bazaar. <laughs> Um, and uh, you've seen increases as well at, at EFC to, to process some of these programs. So I think we are in a really good shape right now. In, in a down budget year, you have the governor presenting a, a DEC budget with, that holds our staff. 10, 15, 20 years ago, DEC was always on the chopping block. You know, we were the agency that got cut in tough fiscal times. We lost 1,000 people from our agency in 2009 and 10 what, during, the, during the housing crisis. 1,000 people. That's 25% of the agency just gone in, in two years. Uh, now you have a, a a budget crunch. You've had you had COVID before that, and what has happened? What has this governor done? She's increased our staffing over that period because she recognizes that things like resiliency, severe weather, water contamination, those are real, and that's what we're doing at DC. Right, but this year's budget maintains the status quo in staffing and basically does that by rating the environmental protection funds. And this comes at a time when most environmentalists would say that the pace of spending isn't appropriate now, that we're not spending close to what actually gets appropriated on a year-to-year basis. So what do you think, one, about rating the EPF for the status quo, and two, this idea that even more staff is needed to accelerate the spending? 
Well, first of all, we're spending environmental protection fund dollars on environmental purposes. This is not a, a $25 a million dollars on uh, staff? Well, listen, uh, we have extraordinary needs at DEC. It's all justifiable under the purposes of the EPF to put uh, you know, some burden on the EPF to, to fund programs and fund the work on those programs. I mean, that. look, let's roll back the clock on the EPF. When I started, Dave, what was the EPF? $136 million. We have a $400 million EPF now. And we need staff to do the programs that we come up with, that the legislature comes up with. Every year, we're layered. We are layered with, with various needs, and it's exciting to be doing what we're doing. Um, so it's really important that, that you know, we look and think creatively about how to fund those programs. Do we have the staff? Your second question, do we have the staff to do these programs? Uh, again, yes, we do. We were up significantly last year in staffing. Um, again, an exciting commitment from the Gov to, to, to give us those numbers. And we, you know, we, asked, we asked to remain at our level this year in order to carry out these programs. Asked to remain at the level and didn't ask for additional staff? Well, we, listen, we always ask for more. Everyone, okay. every agency, every <laughs> single agency will ask for more. But we asked for at least to be held where we are right now. And, of course, we got that support, which is really exciting. So, finally, coming back to the Environmental Bond Act specifically, are there any types of environmental spending that would fall outside the scope of the Environmental Bond Act? Is there anything that's come to you and we're like, you know what, with all these different uh, criteria, this actually doesn't fit the bill for whatever reason? You know, one of the things that I think you could do is you could take a stroll through the 1,300-some-odd responses to the survey and requests that we really had to mm -hmm. kind of identify needs, and, and you could come up with a handful of things like, yeah, well, you know, railroads are not something we're going to fund, for example. Um, not clean-burning railroads? <laughs> Zero-emission railroads? But I think the trickiest thing is that there's so much need, right? And there's so many folks who are looking for, well, can bond acts all this? The specific guide rails that we have within the act really direct us towards really what I think are, you know, community and environmental benefits. You know, there are things that are really clearly not within the Bond Act, and that are maintenance activities. Um, you know, it's not bondable. It's not a capital cost. And that's something that we're going to probably see increasing demands for, of like, how do we maintain this or that type of infrastructure? It's like, well, maintenance is not part of this, right? This is about uh, capital projects that increase our resilience uh, and help communities move into, the, move into the future to be more resilient. If you think about resilience, it's not just on the physical landscape. It's about the people. It's about the finances. It's it's all of these different aspects that we've got to think about. Mm. And projects has to last more than ten years. I mean, that's something that's bondable has a life beyond ten years. So there are a lot of really great projects, programs that don't have that that sort of time horizon. So that's really a starting point on how we approach some of these projects. Well, finally, for people who want to follow uh, the Bond Act process, you guys have a website, ny.gov slash Bond Act. What sort of information is out there? Is this something that should just be thought of as a tool for the people interested in spending money, or is this something that the general public might be able to utilize as well? I think both, really. Uh, one of the things we do is we really level set, tell the story of what there is in the Bond Act, uh, what opportunities there are. And every time we push out an opportunity, so that's eligibility guidelines that we want feedback on from folks, right? We want to hear from folks about, do you think we're doing the right program? Does this match with what we need to be doing? One of the things we'll, we're doing, and I would encourage folks to sign up for updates on the Bond Act site. Uh, you can go in there. We have a sign up for updates button. Hit it. Give us your information. We'll email you every time we push out eligibility guidelines, every time a program is announced. Because one of the one of the top questions I get is, how do I access funds, and what is the Bond Act fund? 
And, you know, the Bond Act per se is the pot of money. And it, it itself is not like a program that funds things. It's all of this, this myriad of programs um, and staff that are behind those programs working hard to deliver the benefits uh, of those dollars. Um, so, we, you know, we talked about buses. We talked about schools. We talked about the water infrastructure and the IMG or intermunicipal grants. As we move forward, I would say stay tuned in the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to see more programs rolling out. We're working hard on eligibility guidelines to put on the street and get feedback so that we can launch programs and get more dollars out into communities and do really what the Bond Act is here for, to build projects. And I say build, you know, not necessarily brick and mortar. It might be root wads and trees and stream restoration. There's a whole range of ways we can define build, right? But bondable projects, get them in the ground, get them out in communities and get the money out the door to pay contractors for good, you know, good paying jobs, right? And that's a real important part of the Bond Act is making sure we had the prevailing wages in, making sure that for larger projects, we're including the apprenticeship opportunities, getting the money out the door, making sure at the end of the day that we're all compliant. Um, you know, and I'll add on there and pulling more of those federal dollars in that sparking of joy, right? Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been speaking with Basil Sagos. He's the commissioner for the State Department of Environmental Conservation and Susanna Randall, the department's chief resiliency officer. Thank you both for visiting us. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to see you. Is your business, agency, or service interested in delivering your message to more than two dozen radio stations statewide carrying Capital Press Room? If so, visit capitalpressroom.org to contact our underwriting team.